All right, I will read our sermon text um, from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. Hebrews 10, 32 39. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for the work of enlightenment that you have done in us, that you have, by your word and spirit, opened our eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And you have produced faith. You have given us a confidence and a hope. And we pray this morning, as we consider your word, that you would Renew that. Well, as I was thinking about what to preach as we came back to commemorate God's faithfulness to us in dark times, this text came to me immediately and repeatedly. And for those who are familiar with the book of Hebrews, one of the main themes, one of the contexts for the writer of Hebrews writing this church is to encourage them in their endurance of faith. That's, we could probably say that that is the theme, that there are various temptations and trials that these believers are facing, um, and they are tempted to lose the confidence that they first had. In this portion of the uh, letter, which was a, almost certainly a homily or sermon that was given to the church, uh, the preacher is giving an exhortation and in this portion of the exhortation, he directs the church backwards to past faithfulness and forward to the future promises of God in order that they would be presently faithful. He directs them to the past times when they endured with faith, and he directs them to future promises to motivate them, and he calls them to be presently Faithful, and this is the exhortation that I want to give to us. I want us, as I mean, I think it's fitting that as we gather here, for those who are new, um, I don't quite know how many of you are new, but we gathered here for a summer because because we weren't, you know, they didn't want us to be gathering, uh, and they put legislation in place so we couldn't, so we came outside and we met here, and well, I don't know if you share this sentiment, but. Um, my, my recollection of those days uh, is one of fondness. 
uh, and happiness and joy. And if I'm going to be completely honest, I actually miss them. Um, and not, not because I just, you know, like to squabble and I'm getting bored. Um, although I can like to squabble and sometimes I do get bored, but, uh, but I do miss the, the, the unshakable confidence that I had in God. And um, the, the time was a very special time. Not just for, you know, the, I mean, it's beautiful meeting out here. Um, but because there, there was a sense that I had that our church was full of faith. And um, I just want, I want us to consider very seriously the words of the writer of Hebrews. And I want to inspire and motivate a greater confidence um, in our church and who Christ is and what he has done and what he will do for us. So the, the exhortation begins with a call to remember the faith of former days. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. They say that you shouldn't live in the past, and there's certainly a, an unhelpful and unfaithful uh, way to look at the past, right? We might refer to that as just surface-level nostalgia, um, which often when we look back, uh, our view of the past is typically worse than it was and better than it was at the same time, <laughs> right? Reality is probably not as bad as we imagined in some ways, and it was probably actually worse, that we have this capacity whether it's almost a self-preservation thing of kind of blotting out of our minds the, the struggles and difficulties we went through, or to make ourselves feel get better, to, to think of it as better than it actually was, to overlook the trials and the difficulties. But putting that aside, there's a very clear exhortation. There's nothing, you don't have to read between the lines to look back, but recall the former days. And the preacher is telling the congregation to pause for a moment and don't look forward and don't even think about the present, but think very carefully and attentively to the past. Um, not to boast, unless it is to boast in God's mercy and kindness and provision, but to regain a vision for the Christian life from a time where you were full of faith. And I want to say this clearly. For the Christian, our best days are never behind us. Never. The writer of Hebrews seeks to encourage the people to carry on the fight of faith by reminding them of past victories. He wants to point out their past willingness to suffer for Christ as both the evidence of faith and the ongoing standard. The strategy of looking back implies that our faith ought to be growing and not diminishing. If we were to look back on our lives and say, consider things from a physical standpoint, right? As we age, we get weaker, we get sicker. Um, we, we don't have the strength and the stamina and the health that we once had. So if we look back, uh, we, were, we will likely be discouraged. And the reason for that is our bodies are decaying. Uh, for the Christian, because for all people in this cursed earth, 
our outward bodies are decaying. As great a life as we have and as good as we can get with our health, and we ought to steward our bodies well, and we ought to care about it, and we ought to preserve our strength as much as we can for as long as we can to do the most good that we can. But even if we do, maybe some of us will reach 100, right? And by the time we reach 100, most of us will not be at a place where we're enjoying life that much. So we need to keep perspective. But all of us acknowledge that outwardly, we just are decaying. So we can't look back at our physical attributes to encourage us forward. Because we just know that that's not going to come back. Right? However, it is not so with faith. Faith is different. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The inner self is the man that is being renewed into the image of Jesus Christ, and our bodies are decaying. But even those two, he says in chapter 15, will one day be raised and renewed, incorruptible. But the point is this. Looking back at physical accomplishments or abilities serves a limited purpose because we are decaying. But looking back at spiritual abilities and fruit is meaningful because we ought to be growing in faith. We never look back on our faith and say, remember when, with resignation. We don't recall the former days when our joy and our confidence were indestructible and simply say, that was nice. We use it as motivation as we are reminded by what God has done and is able to do and indeed promises to do in us. He did such a work in us before and he can do it again. Practically, I just want to encourage you to not accept that your best days of faith are behind you. That is just not true if you have the spirit of the living God in you who is renewing you day by day. He was taking you from glory to glory. Your body may break down. You, you, you may not even make it home. But your best days in the Lord could be before you. And so many Christians, and maybe even most, and myself included, we, we can often just feel like our best days are behind us. And it's almost painful to look back because it's just a reminder of what you once were. It's a reminder of what you once had. And it's a reminder of what you lost. But we need to actually look back there. And if we've lost something, if we look back and we see the faith that once characterized our life and realize that we haven't moved forward, then the, the call of Christ is repentance and the promise of Christ is to renew. Our best days, our best days are not behind us. They are before us. So let's listen to the exhortation of Scripture and consider, recall, former days. I want to take you on a journey of recalling former days as we sit in this place intentionally to commemorate former days. The first thing we have to say about this, about former days, is that the former days were the work of God. He says that you were enlightened, which implies that something was done to us. And we have to begin here, right? If we look back on former days and look at back at it with a vain perspective, with a man-focused perspective, with a conceited perspective, 
then we're not going to move forward in faith. We're going to move forward in unbelief. If all of it does is say, I look back and think of, of the greatness that I once was, then you can't move forward in faith because conceit and arrogance and human pride is the antithesis to faith. And so at the beginning here, we are oriented, we are reminded that everything that he's going to say moving forward, the evidences of faith that are necessary in this group of believers is the result, is the fruit of the work of God. You were enlightened, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the place that we begin in all things, and including recalling, is to give glory to God. It is all his work, and we must take heart that the God who produced faith in us by his Spirit, giving us the knowledge of his glory in the face of his Son, can renew that faith. The confidence in this text, beneath it, is in the God who says, let there be light. And if you feel that your faith has waned and you're discouraged by the fruit that you see or don't see, that what you need to do is not stare longer in the mirror. You need to not dwell on the accomplishments of the past and stay there. You need to think about Jesus Christ. You need to actually go back further. You need to go back further to when you were full of faith, to when you had none. And then you need to be reminded that there was a time in my life when I was absolutely blind to the glory of God, when I absolutely had no care for his honor and for his renown. And then I did. And that was God. And if you find yourself at a place now where your love for God and your desire for his glory and the honoring of his name has diminished, then the first thing you must do is be reminded that God says, um, let light shine out of darkness, and it does. And, and to be honest with you, I, we could stop there. But he doesn't and we won't. So what is the fruit of faith? Now the, now the um, preacher goes on to not only describe, it's not a mental state that you had. It's, not, it's, not, it, it's actually very concrete, very practical, very tangible faith. Remember the former days when you were enlightened and, and, you, and this is the fruit of your faith. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. There are three evidences of faith that characterize these believers that the preacher is pointing them back to. One, the confidence that they once had, the faith that they once had, was evidenced by their willingness to endure suffering, including public reproach. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. For most of my Christian life, growing up in Canada, um, I have thought about opposition to my faith, and persecution, but let's just say opposition, uh, primarily in terms of physical affliction. 
when we hear sermons about persecution or go to, you know, hear a youth pastor talk about it, we think of physical affliction, imprisonment, torture, death, etc. And I have had the thought, as I'm sure you have, if you know the Lord, I wonder what I would do if I would face such suffering. Well, one of the ways you can know what you would do if you would face physical affliction is if you would face mental affliction. What you would do if you face mental affliction? Faithful with little, faithful with much. There is another kind of affliction that the preacher here mentions very intentionally. Public exposure to reproach. And I preached on this, and it struck me as I considered this from Scripture that actually um, one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest trials that we could face is public reproach, is public shame. And one of the greatest needs for us to do, to have as, as faithful people is the willingness to endure public approach. The reason this is so hard, just to summarize the Scripture's teaching, is because on one hand, we have this insatiable desire as humans for the approval of others. Like, we almost can't, we can't, apart from God's grace, you cannot get over that. You cannot get over that thing in your head and in your heart that craves and just needs to function the approval of others. And therefore, you have this inordinate concern about what they say. Well, actually, one of the fruits of conversion is that you desire the glory of God above the praise of men, Jesus said. And in fact, if you love the praise of men, you can't see the glory of God. They're the antithesis to one another. So, so we have this desire to just, we just want people to say, I know you, I see you, I love you, I affirm you, right? And part of this is built on a good desire to be known and to be loved. But it gets twisted by sin to turn into something else. And the other reason is, correspondingly, we have a deep fear of public shame. Um, and we know this. We figure this out super quick. From your first days at school or with a peer group, one of the greatest concerns that you probably have is how people view, of, view you. And the, the worst memories you probably have of your upbringing are being ostracized from people even though they didn't hurt you. They didn't take your money, right? They're not going to do anything to you, but they won't like you. This has a paralyzing effect on us, and the writer knows this. We have an insatiable desire for the approval of others, and we have a deep fear of public shame. Therefore, he can point to one of the evidences of your faith and your confidence is that you were willing to endure public reproach. This was, this was, in my view, and I'm sure in your experience, the hardest part about all the lockdowns and stuff. Um, I'm not saying, you know, that, that there's no concern about physical stuff or imprisonment or fines and stuff. And I, I'm, not, I'm not bragging. It's almost a confession here. But what bothered me the most was definitely what people thought. Um, I remember when everything happened, I've confessed and I've repented of this, that in the beginning, too much of my thinking was governed by, I would say I was deferring to older, wiser men, but, and there's some truth in that, but definitely some of it was feeling out what people were doing 
to know where the acceptable place to be was and not wanting to step outside of that. And I, I say that to my shame, and I've confessed that before. Um, our mayor, when, when former mayor, I remember when lockdowns came in, she, I remember reading in the paper in my basement her, a quote of her saying, we need to publicly shame anyone who is out. And my mind immediately went to, that's easy to say for people who have laptops and who can order skip the dishes and like who get, keep getting paid. Like what if you live in a rooming house? What if like every day you go outside so you don't kill yourself? What if that's your life? And she's saying that we need to shame them. She used that word, shame. And you know why she used that word? Because she's under the control of the devil, for one. And she knows that shame works. Almost all of the things we went through only worked because of the potency of shame. People's fear of their family disagreeing with them. People's fear of their coworkers saying, you're insane, you're a conspiracy theorist. People afraid of the media, right? There was, there was campaigns against people, strategic campaigns. When someone spoke up or spoke out, it was just like, it wasn't kill them. It wasn't even at this point jail them. It was shame them for their selfishness, for their lack of love for their neighbor, right? Shame is potent. And one of the evidences of faith in the life of the believer is, is that it is powerless. I still remember um, being asked, actually, I think you asked me to come speak at a protest. And I remember, uh, I remember thinking initially, well, of course I have to do that. And then I actually immediately felt nervous. Because I never actually got up in front of people who aren't all Christians and publicly proclaimed Christ. And to be honest, I didn't even know if people wanted me there. Like, I know you asked me to be there, but I wasn't like, I was like, did they ask me to be here? Or, and what I was really doing in my mind is I was thinking through the consequences of being ignored and rejected. And then I very quickly became aware that that was what I was doing. And I felt really gross. Because it's just a real, it, it, it's treason. It's self-absorbedness. It's, it's pathetic in every respect. And by God's mercy, he, 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 it was an opportunity for me to get over that. And I had to repent of that. And I remember going, I remember speaking, and I remember, I remember after that, something died in me. The, the, that, that little coward who was so, something died and something lived that I, I felt tangibly like I'd never experienced before about the truthfulness of the gospel and the worth of Christ like I'd never felt before. And this is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Not, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to be prisoned. He says, I'm not ashamed. This is why our Lord Jesus Christ, it says, scorned the shame. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. 
The cross was meant to be not only physically torturous, but we overlook this, and it's very clear in the Bible, it was meant to be humiliating and shameful. Naked, cast out, forsaken, all of your friends gone. You, you know what that means, right? That means you are completely shamed. And, and few of us have ever felt that to the fullest extent. And is, it is, you would, you would probably rather, I would say like 90% of you would 95% rather just be shot in the head. Because we hate the feeling of abandonment. We hate the feeling of being called dirty and unclean and immoral and disgusting more than anything. Most of us would say if we could maintain our image in people's minds and line up against the wall and take one to the skull, we would. But what if you can't maintain your reputation? What if no one celebrates you? What if no one writes a song for you? What if the media doesn't say how noble, how brave, how heroic? What if they say that disgusting, vile person got what they deserve? And that was the scandal of the cross. Not only did Jesus literally do nothing wrong, he was treated as if he did. There's nothing worse than that. So we need to be willing to, to endure struggles and sufferings, and that includes the willingness to be publicly exposed to reproach. And do you, do you remember that? This isn't about me. This is about you. Do you remember that? I know you do, because I know many of you, when you came out, were the only ones in your family who was okay. I know there's a rift in your family because of it. I know that some of you have relationships that have not come back because of that. That employment became precarious. I know that there was a time in that time when many of you were faced with a decision Am I willing to bear the reproach of Christ? And I know that many of you said yes. And you don't tell me, as you recall former days, if that was not better. If that was not better than the paralyzing awareness of what people think and the concern with how you're viewed. Do you not feel how that stifles your love for God? Recall the former days. But not only are they willing to themselves personally endure, the litmus test of their willingness to endure is also seen in their willingness to publicly identify with those afflicted for their faith. And sometimes, he says, being partners with those so treated. Being partners. For you had compassion on those in prison. From an early age, we know this. I, I, I still, the, the strongest memories of my mind from my childhood are in failing to identify with people who are being bullied. That's the greatest shame of my childhood. I still have dreams about it, of just being a coward and just thinking like, this isn't my fight and I'll be here in case it goes worse, but never really willing to step in the way that I ought to never being willing to be identified. Because when you're identified with someone who is scorned, what happens to you? You bear the scorn. Well, not so with this church. He says, remember those, remember those days? Remember those days when not only you were willing, 
But remember when when you your brother and sister, it wasn't your fight. You know, it was it didn't involve you in one sense, but they were taking heat for it. And you didn't say, well, you know what? They they shouldn't they should have said it a different way. They should have been more winsome. You know, there's a different approach. Like I don't disagree with them, but we just take different approaches and things. All our cowardly ways of avoiding identifying with our brethren. No, this church said, yeah, and I'm one of them too. One of the greatest failures and acts of treason by the church and something that needs to be repented of is their failure to stand with the afflicted brethren. In our instance, most of the church even joined hands in the public scoffing of them when they went to prison. I know that um, when one church stayed open in Waterloo, Trinity, that the professors who taught Pastor Jacob and the administrators of a school that he used to go to came out publicly siding with the state and condemning him. And I know for him, this was one of the worst things. Who cares when an unbelieving mayor thinks of you? Like, really, who really cares? But when you're professors... Or when Pastor Tim went to prison, multiple people coming out on social media and being very quick to throw him under the bus. Joining in the public scoffing. Um, when Pastor Tim Stevens went to prison, I don't know how many of you are aware of Pastor Tim. Uh, Pastor Tim is in Calgary, and he kept his church open, Fairview Baptist Church. And he was arrested in front of his wife and children and put into prison. I forget for how many days. And this happened the week before one of our services. And I thought that surely this is the point that the Christian church just said, that, like, look, whatever you think about this virus, like, this is wrong. This is wrong, and we need to say something. Or at least not say something to condemn him. And almost uniformly, everyone came out in condemnation. This is, what we, this is what we read. Okay? This is what we read. God, in his kindness, has considered Pastor Tim Stevens worthy to suffer for the name of his son. Acts 5.41 he has poured out his blessing in the form of persecution, Matthew 5.11. He has raised Pastor Tim up to stand before the magistrates and bear witness to Jesus Christ, Matthew 10.18. All of this, by the way, two weeks ago was ruled by a court as illegal. Every charge that was given in Alberta during that time was dropped. So he was legally vindicated. But who cares? Because he was already vindicated. The most difficult persecution he will face, this is speaking about him, that Sunday, is the reviling and false witness of his professing brothers and sisters, Matthew 10, 11. They will say things like, one, he was breaking the law, which now has been demonstrated false, no, he wasn't. He was exercising his lawful duty to practice his religion according to conscience, which is a God-ordained, charter-protected freedom. 
And I explained that. Reviling number two, he was a risk to his community, and that is not loving. No, he wasn't. Reviling number three, he ought to obey the government because of Romans 13. No, he ought to obey Jesus. All human authority, including the government, is limited, and all human submission is limited. Only God has unlimited authority and requires absolute obedience. Our submission to authority, including our submission to the state, is limited by the prescription of God's word. All authority is limited to its God-ordained sphere of responsibility. A pastor does not have authority over another church. Parents do not have authority over children from other families, etc. God requires all people to submit to governing authorities. The authority of governing authorities is subject to God's word. God has given judicial and coercive authority to the state to bear the sword. They can punish the evildoer and reward the good. This is why churches, families, and individuals do not conduct trials or convict criminals. It's not our responsibility, and we have no authority. But he has not given the government exclusive authority over the worship of the church. Not in a time of pandemic or plague. Never. Even in times of genuine plague, which are demonstrably not our time, the government must respect the duties and authority of families, individuals, and churches. Public safety has not been exclusively delegated to the state. That is a totalitarian assumption and not a biblical one. Further, when any authority requires of us what God forbids or forbid what God requires, we must say with the disciples, we will obey God rather than man. Pastor Tim is offering up obedience to God by gathering the church to worship, and the state cannot forbid that. Reviling number four, he didn't have to be. It was unnecessary. The universal practice of the Church of Christ has been to assemble. The church literally means assembly on the Lord's Day. To commemorate the resurrection, we gather to hear the preached word, to receive the sacraments, to practice discipline, to receive members, and to exercise our duties to love and encourage the church. This assembly is corporate, the whole family, and face-to-face. The whole family sits at the table. 2020 did not change that. Reviling five, this is a bad witness. No cowardice and disobedience is a bad witness. Most Canadians apparently think witness is synonymous with approval. Therefore, to have people's disapproval is to have a bad witness. But it's helpful at this point to remind Canadian Christians about Jesus. He explicitly says that some of our greatest persecution would be reviling and false testimony. He was abandoned by all his followers and he didn't win a popularity contest. He explicitly says we'll be dragged before the magistrates in order to bear witness, Matthew 10, 18. Jesus Christ was hated by the world and promised his followers they would be hated, John 15, 18. He said, contradicting this Canadian sentiment that we will actually be cursed when everyone thinks well of us and the only people that everyone likes are false prophets, Luke 6, 26. This kind of thinking that everyone has to like you or you're doing something wrong is legalistic. It is a man-made standard that would have condemned the sinless Son of God himself. We are proud to hear of Pastor Tim and will be praying fervently for him. And then we did. 
And all of those things happen. Do not lose your confidence. Do not lose your faith. And one of the ways you can discern this is by your willingness or unwillingness to associate with those who are scorned. Don't look for the winning fight. Don't put your finger in the air and see which way the wind is blowing in public sentiment. Look at the Word of God and see what is true and do that. And if you see people beside you going in that direction, they are your brothers and sisters. And you identify with them. And you take whatever scorn comes their way with you. No one should suffer alone. So we need to look back to examine the faith that we once had, and we need to look forward. He says, you knew that you yourselves, the reason that you did these things, that you were willing to suffer the way you did, was because you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. True faith is a forward-looking faith. The kind of fruit that we just went through, that the author mentioned, is not the result of human zeal. It is the appropriate response to the enormous and unfathomable promises of God. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken whose builder and founder is God. What would change about your life if you truly believed that God's promises could not fail? That no matter what happened to you in your life, the worst possible imaginable thing, physical death, totally scorned, taken outside, away from the camp as the Lord Jesus Christ was, the worst thing that could happen does not change the certainty of God's promises. And the fruit of this is your willingness to endure. The willingness for you to give up. The willingness for you to suffer the loss of what you had. That was the third thing. I didn't actually mention that. We hold things loosely. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. We, you, you all know this. You are here, right? We were meeting at a Christian school for years, and they decided to put in place... Um, and we were following all the legislation. They decided to put in a more restrictive legisl legislation than even the state had, which would have precluded some of our members who have issues of conscience from attending worship. And so we went through a process of trying to plead with them and discuss with them if they needed to do that. But in the end, they decided that they were going to go ahead anyways. And our choice was, well, either we put this policy in place and we're going to have to tell some people in our church that they just can't come until this stuff is behind us. Which, my friend, that happened to my friend, the church in Peterborough, the pastor called him and said, I saw that you weren't wearing a mask on Sunday. You can't come to church. And, or we figure something out. And you know what? Easy decision. We have no money. We have, we have no plan B. No one in this city likes us. No one's opening up their doors. You're not even allowed to meet inside. There wasn't like a probability of anything good happening apart from God's mercy. Easy decision. Because you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Because you have something better to look forward to. Who cares? Who cares if we lose our air conditioning? Who cares if we lose a roof over our head? 
And I want you to think about this because part of me, we're not going to do this, but I honestly, I told the elders that part of me just wants to tell Barb and Ben that we're not leaving. <laughs> and, and I mean that. I'm like, I don't care. I, I, just, I just, what I want is us to have a sincere devotion. I don't care about service times. I don't care about conveniences. I don't care about it'll be better for outsiders. All I care about and all the elders care about and all the word of God cares about is that we hold fast to our original confidence. And the evidence of that is that we are, doing, we are willing to do whatever it takes to meet. This is fun, right? This is fun right now. It wasn't fun back then. What if this was winter time? I told them, we'll meet here and I'll preach for 10 minutes. You don't believe me, but I will. I'll preach for 10 minutes. We'll stand and we'll barely hold on and we'll preach for 10 minutes and we'll sing and we'll be happy. We need to hold things loosely. If the church dissipates because you don't have a comfortable space, you're not a church. And I'm not saying we don't try very hard to accommodate because we love people. We, we want them to be able to focus and to hear and to attend. We care about that. I don't want to make it unnecessarily difficult for people. That's just not loving. And lastly, not only do we recall the days of the past when we held things loosely, when we were willing to endure suffering, when we publicly identified with those who are, will, who are under reproach, we have a forward-looking faith in the promises of God. This is what drives everything. This is what helps you hold your building loosely, hold your reputation loosely, hold your body and your comfort loosely is not because you're a sucker for punishment and you like the pain, but you know there's something better. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? To have everyone like you, to have everything that you want, to have everything that you need and lose it all. The promise of God and Jesus Christ is that we could have none of those things and gain everything. This is a value proposition. The exhortation of the preacher is that we need to have present endurance. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Do not throw away your confidence. We have the need of endurance. We must do the will of God. We must persevere in faith and preserve our souls. Recall our former days. If you are in Christ, your best days are before you. Consider the future promises of God, that the loss of all things is not worth comparing to what will one day be revealed and renew present confidence. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, as we recall former days, we are reminded of your mercy to us, of your Spirit's renewing work in our hearts, of enlightening us, of producing a confidence that can only be explained by you. And we pray, Lord, that you would renew that in our time where our love has grown cold, where our affections have been diminished, where our obedience is lacking, where our willingness to suffer 
God, has decreased, would you forgive us? Would you renew us? And may it be of Hill City Baptist that our best days are before us. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen.